Welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 31 with Josh Inman from ESL Australia New Zealand. For anyone who's looking for a job in esports or is specifically interested in the development of the space over the last 10 years from the grassroots and a real experience from on the ground getting your hands dirty, this is a, a great podcast for you, to be perfectly honest. You know, ESL in Australia and New Zealand, without a joke, has, has been a fairly imperative part of growing the industry over this time. You know, they started with humble beginnings and, and have reached uh, some acclaim and, and are running definite world-class events out of Australia, which is, you know, no mean feat as we are a rather small market in the grand scheme of things. So if you want to understand a bit more about grassroots industry, development esports scene as a whole, and what it's really been like as a soldier on the ground, this is uh, a perfect podcast for you. So without further ado, we'll kick into a commercial and straight into the podcast. We've chosen PLE Computers as a supporter of Big Esports because they believe in supporting the growth of the market just like we do. What we're really excited to work with them with is a whole bunch of initiatives, anything from our coursework teaching people about how to open up their own esports startups or get a job in the industry or transfer from others, to creating live meets for people to meet together, to network and develop new partnerships and opportunities, to this online podcast as well. So PLE Computers is one of the largest online PC retailers in Australia, focusing on gaming and performance hardware. So you can check them out if you're interested in buying any new products or purchasing a brand new gaming PC. Josh, welcome to the Big Esports Podcast, mate. It's fantastic to have another person who really cut their teeth at the same way that I did at the start of the scene in the realm of commentary. How are you? I'm excellent, Chris. Thanks for having me, mate. I'm really excited to, uh, to have a chat with you. No worries at all. So before we kick things off, can you just let the listeners know a little bit about yourself um, and what you've done in the past in the esports market up to where you are today? Uh, yeah, sure, mate. So uh, I am the operations manager for ESL Australia. Um, I run the day-to-day operations of our office here in Sydney. Um, my background stems way back. Uh, I first got into sports by competing in Halo 3, which I was garbage at. So uh, at a an event way back in 2009, of which I happened to be teamed up with Nick Vanzetti, which many of your listeners may know is the managing director of ESL Asia. Um, we teamed up in an event that he happened to be running. I had a crack at, uh, at commentary at that event by chance, and I just got hooked on it. Um, people gave me some good feedback and, uh, one thing led to another and I was the, uh, the official commentator for all ACL events after that. So that was in Halo. Um, and then I eventually branched out to Call of Duty where I found some, pretty decent success um but it was through that event that i got tied up with nick running uh acl events which is australian cyber league that went for several years uh until uh acl became a business there was a business name tied to that that's vim media and events which was the name that uh, nick and his business partner jb hewitt came up with so officially i was an employee of vim media and events there for a little while um i had a one year or so hiatus where i left the company came back as a project manager, uh, did that for a couple of years, got a promotion, a senior project manager. And then as of December 2018, I've been the operations manager of ESL Australia. So what's the internal process for you going from a player to a commentator to actually running the events? Is it a, a conscious thing where you've planned that, hey, you know, this is something that I want to do step by step? Or is it just taking it as the opportunity presents you? Um. 
I mean, we, I, I personally feel like I've, I've got a pretty, at least in Australia, I've got a somewhat unique story. There's a few people, only very few people that can share it, but um, there was no plan to it, if I'm honest. Um, I kind of fell into it. So mm. uh, part of that story there was I was teaming up with Nick and that was just by chance. I found Nick Vanzetti on, online in a match made game of Halo 3 where I happened to, to kick his ass. He may, he may say otherwise, um, but he and his brother reached out to me and we ended up getting on a team. So that was early 2009. It was by chance again that Nick uh, fell into running this event, which was Oz Halo 2009. Um, and that's just because the operator at the time was struggling a little bit. So Nick stepped in. He had the resources and ability to run an event and he wanted to. So he had no background in events, neither did uh, any of us uh, that actually operated that event. Um, he had a background in in both retail through EB Games and also film and TV. Um, so he uh, stepped in to run that event. Me, by proxy, got roped into it because I was his teammate. That's how I got involved. Um, the only real thing I did for that event was, funnily enough, I helped with some catering and uh, then also just helped with running some cables for, uh, for Network and Power. And then it was just a coincidence that um, the stream that we were trying to do, which just so happened to be a webcam pointed at the stage, um, they wanted commentary for, mostly for the people in the audience. Um, I didn't want to at first. Uh, Nick Vanzetti's brother had a go at it. Um, it wasn't that great, shall we say? Um, or at least I didn't think it was. So I decided that, well, I've done public speaking and debating and whatnot at school. I'm pretty decent at public speaking. I'll have a crack. I did. I had um, positive support from the crowd and my friends there and kept going. So that's that's how I got into, I suppose you could say I got into esports because after that point, Nick started running events regularly. Uh, generally three times a year was the, was the, uh, the system for um, or the format for ACL. Um, Nick then kind of found a niche in the market where people were interested in, in esports, and particularly interested in the people that, uh, well, who Nick was and the people that he worked with, such as myself and, and the people who ran ACL. Um, so people started reaching out to us for more, uh, corporate and commercial, uh, ideas and, and pitches and briefs and wanting help from esports or gaming specific fanatics to help them run their activations so it started through third-party mainstream event agencies reaching out to us for help um, and we did that on a kind of a contract basis and then it is born from that is where nick and his business partner jb started the media and events which was the business side of acl and it is been media and events that uh that esl eventually became interested in uh, and ended up um, uh, basically um, taking over, I guess, uh, ACL and Vimeo and events. So for us to mm. become ESL today. Um, and it's just a, it's a long path there from uh, getting involved on, on the very basic level and then slowly becoming more and more involved uh, in, well, I guess, planning and managing events to get where I am today. Yeah, so 2009, 10 years ago from today, paint, paint me a picture of what that tournament looked like. <laughs> very, very different to tournaments of today. So uh, when Oz Halo 09 was announced, it, uh, it was at uh, a venue called Lightspace in Brisbane, um, and it was just a, a small, small function space, I would guess, probably in the realm of about, I'm only guessing here, 10 years ago, about 600 mm. or so square metres, that's at a guess. 
enough barely to fit uh, the 24 teams that we did have there. Um, but it was a $5,000 event, or is, that's what was advertised. And that was the largest Halo prize pool we've seen, I think, ever at that stage. Um, so it, it was insanely big. Um, but that's what we thought. You know, this is a time where the main stage, as I said, it was it was a stage, it was venue provided, but there was just trestle tables up there. Um, Nick did buy some of these really crappy uh, LED-style bars, I guess, these LED bars to go along the tables. But that was all. <laughs> that was about it when it came to stage design. Mm. Um, everyone was lucky just to have, you know, Astro headsets, let alone um, a full-blown stage AV setup. Um, I can't really recall. I think there may have been a projector for people to watch, but even then that was lucky. But yeah, the stream was literally a webcam pointed at the stage. So no, <laughs> no switching, no audio, no POV, just basically nothing. Um, and that is how the land was. The land back then was about the players and the people playing and the experience. Mm. Um, it had very little to almost zero to do with the spectator at home, um, which obviously is complete contrast to what you see of events uh, today. Yeah, so, if, you know, a 5K prize pool for 24 teams in Halo in 2009 up until, you know, events like Intel Extreme Masters in Sydney with a 300K or thereabouts prize pool. Mm. Is is there any is there any magic that's been lost over that period of time? Is there anything that those initial events had that's now no longer existing that you wish was still around? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one for me myself to answer because it, it's so it's it's so difficult to not look back with rose tinted glasses of when I was just a, a young naive player versus the stress that comes with running the biggest events in the world. Mm. Um, look, I think with the corporatization and monetization of anything, you will lose some of that magic. So my short answer, I guess, would be yes. At the same time, there's so, so many more opportunities that are now created for people wanting to get into competitive gaming um, that it's kind of, in my eyes, a bit of a worthwhile trade-off. And let's not forget that these community groups still exist in a lot of games out there and a lot of groups. Um, so, And they still have their magic, their, their passionate drive of players who just want to play rather than just getting it for the, the sport of it or for the the prize money or these kinds of uh, other reasons to get into mm. it. So um, hard one to answer. I'd say for me, it's lost a little bit of magic, but it's just uh, it comes with the times. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'd have to agree. Like, uh, you know, I've run a lot of community events in the past and can understand that, you know, the 12, 13 hour days or 16 hour days look a lot nicer today than they did at the time for sure. But mm. I think, yeah, I agree with you in the sense that, the sense of community is one thing that I definitely miss and, you know, I would tie that partly into the growth of social media killing forums. There's not one place where everybody hangs out and talks online and then meets in person. But also, I guess I saw a change personally in about 2011, 2012 with a lot of the, the MOBA games um, like Heroes of New Earth and then coming into League of Legends where players no longer wanted to turn up just to play. They wanted to turn up solely to win. And if there was a much better team than them coming along, like Team Immunity, which was the powerhouse of the day, you know, they were unlikely to enter the tournament because they knew they weren't going to take home the first, second or third place prize. Mm, yeah, and I and I saw that myself. So 
I'd agree with that experience that you had. And back in the day when, at least when I was playing, you know, um, subjectively, I, I mean, I never knew, uh, oh, sorry, I always knew that I was going to lose. Mm. Um, but for me, it was just about the fun, meeting up with your friends and going to play on land and, and have a good weekend away with, with a lot of like-minded people. And that, you know, that still happens. But, uh, I mean, in today's esports climate, it's, it's very much um, controlled and corporatized. And, again, there's it's not necessarily a bad thing in a lot of ways it's very very good um but you do miss some of some of those old uh, community based moments shall we say mm. and and what does it look like you know running an event while wearing multiple hats at the same time if you're trying to facilitate the operations of these events back in the day and and handle the commentary at the same time does it put an extra burden on you um i mean to be honest back then i mean it was it was volunteer work with no pressure i mean even when we had sponsors I mean, one of our first sponsors was Sonic TVs. Um, shout out to Sonic, by the way, for being one of our first sponsors. They get out their sponsorship uh, at a particular event was three 55-inch TVs. So mm. <laughs> there wasn't too much you had to deliver to get three TVs, which was which was great. Um, but uh, no, I, I would say that it wasn't as hard at the time. I probably would have thought it was a little bit stressful, but back then. Commentary is mostly what I did. I mean, I still ran some some cables and I still drove the van from, you know, interstate to bring all the equipment and do those kinds of things. But it's we're talking about a totally different kettle of fish compared to events these days. So um, the stress of commentary and, and activating those community-based events yeah, it pales in comparison to to modern to modern uh, esports. And and if someone was to ask you, you know, in two thousand and nine or so, what an esports event would look like in 2018, 2019, like you know, Melbourne Esports Open and IEM that ESL runs, would you would you be able to predict some of it? Are there a few changes that really you know might have shocked you? Um, I mean, I was pretty heavily ingrained in what was grassroots esports back then, and I could never have predicted what it is ten years later. Mm. Um, I I would say that you'd be have to be fairly savvy to predict what was going to happen we all thought that uh esports would pick up but for it to be what it is today you know internationally recognized which don't get me wrong in other in other markets and other regions it already was in 2009 but mm. here in australia no way no one could ever have predicted that um we would we were always, we were always hoping um that we could do it um but it wasn't really on the roadmap i mean even when we started working quote unquote working in in i wouldn't even call it esports i'd say in gaming um we still couldn't predict it when we started to actually make money from agencies and working at um uh activations for expos and stuff which is where a lot of our work started, uh, EB Expo specifically, mm. um, that wasn't really esports. That was, you know, working for publishers and their booths and the agencies that run those booths. Um, like one of the earliest paid gaming activations that I worked on was doing the tech install and manning the Xbox booth of the first public EB Games Expo, which was EB Expo uh, 2011 on the Gold Coast. Um, so that wasn't really esports, and even then, we're like, oh yeah, we're starting to make some coin off gaming and what we've done in the, the gaming scene, but that's not a living off esports, is it? So even then, I could never have predicted where it is now. So it's very, I'm very grateful um, to for where it has come. Um, but yeah, I couldn't have seen it, and there's been a lot of work to get from there to to where we are now. Yeah, and you know, like you were saying, it's it's apparent that you know yourself and your colleagues are 
some of the earliest movers in esports as far as Australia goes. Like you said, you know, esports overseas in 2009 was already was already kicking along fairly well with, um, you know, plenty of Counter Strike 1.6 tournaments overseas in in the Americas and Europe, and things like StarCraft, Brood War over in Korea and such. Mm-hmm. But you know, what are what are some of the major challenges that you guys have experienced being such an early mover in the market? You know, I would say, for example, there's an esports bar here in Melbourne called GG Easy that was, you know, quite an early mover. It was the first, but not too early. So you could, you know, maybe you could argue that ACL was even way before its time. Would would you agree? And what's the process been like? Um, whether ACL was before its time, I'm not too sure. Just because something's the first or the first to really make it quote unquote make it if i could say those terms um doesn't really mean it's before its time i think acl came around perfect timing if i'm honest um Mm. very very difficult to um to get the attention of sponsors and supporters and and backers for uh for us that was definitely the biggest challenge um just getting in a room and having conversations with potential partners and, and brands has always been a challenge. I mean, it's 2019 and we're running events out of Kudos Bank Arena and that can still some be, can be a challenge with some brands. I like to say that they're the brands that are falling behind, but I'm sure you'll have your own thoughts on that, Chris. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, that, that's been the biggest challenge. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, paving, paving the way for a lot of um, big esports in the region um, has been difficult. And I think it's just education, letting people know what esports is and what it actually means for not only the brands, but for the punters and, and for, for future uh, generations of people who just want to get into it. Um, educating them on, on them, educating them on that has been uh, quite difficult. And I would say that coming from or being in a country that is so so focused on sport, mm. um, that's been one of the hardest things to to kind of challenge. You know, go against the status quo of being an active sporting nation to what is to the uninformed and the uninitiated going to something that is a not so active sport dare i say or activity um that's been frowned upon by a lot of people and we still face that challenge to this day but uh especially i feel in australia it's been a hard market yeah and what does i guess putting your business development hat on um and maybe a sponsorship sales hat what does the um education process look like you for a non-endemic brand that you want to bring into the esports space you know where does the conversation generally start and you know is there a a set timeline that it takes for them to really start to get it and maybe want to start investing some dollars into the space depends there's a few different approaches which i'm sure you can appreciate as well chris but for um for your listeners i there's a few different ways you can go about it generally if you are going to a non-endemic and you think it may be a challenge i mean i i like to just go hit hard with some statistics and, and viewership stats, you know, like just to say that mm. viewership of esports challenges the largest sports in the world and it often beats, you know, it was 2016 when we were talking about the, the League of Legends world final beating the, uh, the, the NBA, I think it was. Um, so uh, mm. that was, that was massive at the time. Um, but just throwing some viewership statistics, given, and it's so cliche in, in our world, Chris, but, you know, giving them the old, well, you're going to be targeting the 18 to 30 year old male demographic that has a whole lot of uh, <laughs> of uh, expenditure up their sleeves, um, mm. you know that kind of thing. But um, generally, we we just try and say, look, the average age of a sports consumer and a, a viewer at home is getting older. They're aging out 
younger audiences aren't interested. Millennials and Gen Z are turning to digital platforms and OTT. They're not interested in TV. They're not interested in sport. They're interested in gaming. You know, mm. throw on some articles about some, about some Twitch viewership and about Ninja and about the biggest streamers in the world, and you generally start to get their attention. Um, I can't count how many times I've had the conversation of, oh, people actually watch others play video games? Um, and it's sad that <laughs> that's still happening today. But I, yeah. mean, I, I like to think my job is to educate these people. But generally, just once you really get into the weeds of, of the, the viewership statistics and who is watching, um, they start to get interested pretty quick. Yeah, I would, I would agree 100%. You know, as you know, we do a lot of that here at, at Big, trying to you know, help grow the pie for everyone and bring some new money in, just like I was talking uh, in, in episode 30 about uh, with Walter from HTC Global, who's done the same, you know, in his market. And yeah, it's it's all about education, exactly what you were saying. And I think, you know, for anyone listening, you'll you'll find that you'll get the same answer from anyone who's seen some success in the esports market and people who are really here to stay for the long run. It's all about that educational process. And it does take a long time. And, and I would agree unpacking like what you, what you were saying in being confident in your numbers. And that's been the easiest part for me, I guess, as I take a, a more analyst role on the, on the industry as a whole, um, you know, as a, as a full-time job. And yeah, a lot of the time it's just explaining to them, you know, this is how many people are physically watching a Twitch stream online. And that is compared to these home and away numbers, you know, which is a very popular show here in Australia. And they're extremely comparable. And then you look at the audience and you look at the CPM on offer and you also look at the lack of, you know, money that's uh, lost in the grey as you get in traditional TV and billboard advertising and such, where you're not exactly sure, you know, and that's where maybe some of their margins are, are being made, which don't exist in this market, which could be a challenge in itself for agencies and such. But, mm. you know, I find that it's being such, you know, digitally native audiences that not only is the CPM good, the numbers are good, but you can also prove, you can prove the click through, you can prove the eyeballs and you can prove everything that's going on. So it's a much more above board process. Yeah, and I would agree. That's that's what's fantastic about you know distributing your content online and via platforms that have those metrics. You know, we don't have to rely on you know Nielsen ratings or or any other kind of traditional media platform. We don't need um, metrics coming from news sources. I mean, we have them through those platforms. We distribute through. Um, and there's a lot more detail available thanks to you know the memberships to Twitch. You know, we know the ages. We know the um sexes we know locations we know a lot of, of statistics mm. which that all in turn that kind of data once captured as we all know i'm just talking about the commercial aspect that of course has its own intrinsic value as well so it's not just viewership it's about the data it's about the reach it's about edms you can make once you have um the details and it, it goes on and on so um there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of really positive um, upsell points for, for esports to these non-endemics. Yet, it can still be a challenge at times, but um, I think they're very much coming around. And, you know, with, with ESL focusing on events, which is obviously, you know, a, quite a costly exercise to put a large thing together and requires a lot of staff, is there a concern from you that a lot of brands might be priced out of entering into the market of ESL? Or, you know, do you have options for smaller brands to be able to become involved in the space in a hands-on fashion? I mean... I'm, I'm not concerned about brands being priced out. I think that um, there's a range of products available from not only us, but I mean, there are other esports um, EOs or entities that have plenty of options for those interested in getting the space. But just speaking of ESL, I mean, 
from our own product that we run here in Australia and New Zealand, the uh, the AUNZ Championships, which is our national championships as most uh, ESL um, locations around the world run. Mm. Um, sponsorship packages from that, you know, we've we've done in the past, you know, we've done sub $10,000 sponsorship packages. Um, generally for AUNZ champs, that's about 50 to 150, 200 grand for, for ownership of a program, but it really does vary. And the great thing about one thing that ESL does well and others do as well is um, we create custom packages and we can cater to any client. So the the cost of, of entry into esports for an advertiser and for a partner can be very, very low. And the great thing about esports or at least at ESL anyway, yeah, unlike other traditional media packages, is that we do have the flexibility. We can create, you know, your um, your 30-second TBC and we can run it to at custom slots and we can put your branding from anything to headsets to jerseys to chairs to mm. we can put it on the stream, we can put it in our socials, we can put it on, we can bake it in anywhere. Um, and then when we have media distribution partners, um, we can also utilize those resources as well. But um, just because of the platform we've got, we've got such custom solutions. Um, and the great thing is they scale. So you've got AUNZ Champs where you've got these uh, much cheaper and more um, cost-conscious activities that a partner or brand can engage in all the way up to, well, if you want to, you know, play with the big boys, then you can you can sponsor IEM from it for a really big um uh, a really big deal um, and something that gives you exposure to literally millions um, of these highly engaged, highly energetic um, consumers. Um, so we've got everything in between. So no, I'm not, I'm not too worried about someone or any brand being priced out. Yeah. And that definitely follows some discussions I've had on the podcast and, and in private before about the endemic market, you know, for, and for those listening endemics being, you know, companies that are inherent to the space, especially gaming peripheral, manufacturers and laptops and and computers etc in the fact that you know they can only scale as fast as the market grows however the esports market is now demanding you know a higher cost and people with larger budgets to come in so you know it's not as realistic that these brands are the principal naming right sponsors of the largest esports events in the world but it's definitely i think an advantage of esports in being able to tailor make and create things and once again being you know, such a digital thing, you can sell booked impressions that you can adhere to. And, you know, as long as it makes financial sense for the account manager to look after that, as far as a business proposition goes, you know, it almost allows any company to become involved. Like you were saying, anything from a 10K AUD sponsorship up to, you know, a million plus, depending on what the size of the the global or local event is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And just on the endemic point, I mean, just interesting point how that's evolved over time i mean when we were much smaller or for smaller activities we would reach out to a an endemic let's just use a hypothetical and say it was a headset brand Mm. so we may approach a headset brand and and the conversation used to go hey can you uh can you sponsor us we'll put up your branding can you give us 50 percent off or 80 percent off Mm. maybe even three if we're lucky um now that conversation has evolved to look the kind of Exposure and product we have here, your headsets, although we like them, uh, they're not worth squat. They, they, they pale in comparison to what we can give you. So you give us the headsets and give us <laughs> 50K mm. and we'll give you this really kick-ass product. So that's how that, the endemic conversation for a lot of them have has progressed over time. So 
um, that that space has kind of changed a lot. Um, so I can definitely feel for a, a lot of endemic brands out there that are being left behind by the crazy <laughs> increase in popularity of esports, which no doubt has had a, ben- a, a, a net benefit for them. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the 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 cost of entry for those guys can uh, can sometimes be overwhelming when they have niche markets. Yeah, no, I definitely think you're right, and I've had this discussion as a you know as an endemic brand myself to new people looking to enter the space trying to sell, you know, main stage logo logo sponsorships. But I think an inherent part that's great of being a peripheral manufacturer is you're not necessarily looking for that logo that's just sitting on stage. You know, you want. You want to sell the experience. If you're selling mice and headsets, you want people to test them. You want people to try them out. So, you know, as as much as it would be nice to be the main logo sponsor on the stage of, of IEM or DreamHack, it still makes a lot of sense to be sponsoring the free play area or to have a booth off in the fringes, which is A, more affordable as part of your budget, especially if you're not drawing on global marketing budgets, but B, you know, a natural fit because people actually get to come along, meet you in person, ask questions and actually touch and feel. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's not always about getting, you know, your brand on there. It's about actually getting the product out there, which has uh, has had a lot of benefits for a lot of partners that I've spoken to. I mean, as soon as you see, um, you know, whether it's a large stream or an influence or even just, a, a, you know, your even average, your average esports competitor competing on the the ESL stage, for example, once that goes on stream and people see them using this particular brand of headset, whether there was a brand on stream on or not, doesn't really matter at times if you see your favorite player or your team or someone using that headset generally um there's the incentive there or the motivation to try and get the same headset and we see that all the time so um and we've we have had many partnerships like that where it's a more so of a hey you just provide us product and you know you don't quite have the budget to to invest in a a full-blown sponsorship we get that but you know we could still use your headsets and the exposure of those headsets um, on very, very large events can often be super beneficial. So it's it's a mutual thing, can work both ways without always having to, you know, reach your your your, your hand into the pocket. <laughs> mm. Not always a requirement, even in, in 2019. Yeah, d- changing tact a little bit, you know, we're, we're a developing nation as far as esports goes here or region, if you include, you know, our, our friends over in New Zealand, in the Australian New Zealand region. What what are the players looking for in regards to support from a tournament operator? What are they asking you for? That really varies, Chris. That really, really varies. I mean, you can go from from games and and communities where they don't get much attention. You know, a lot of console games are like that, and mm. they just want events. They don't even want anything. They just want to be able to play in a competitive environment. Which, an unfortunate byproduct, which we can touch on, is that we don't have the capacity to run community volunteer kind of style events anymore because we're just so busy um through to you know let's say your your typical uh esl run grassroots kind of event where they don't want much if it's a if it's a publisher driven activity or a final for us we try to provide flights and a comp um give them that kind of support um if you go a level up sometimes there's you know a, a bit more to that um there's can be sippins involved and then you go all the way to the level of IEM where, you know, uh, there have been cases of, of players or other VIPs that have had business class flights through to, you know, five-star hotels to catering of whatever food they like to, um, you know, they must have specific kinds of foods. You know, there's a, a team where I won't name it, that they won't go on stage unless they have bananas in their green room. Mm. Um 
there's there's all sorts of stuff. It can get to extreme levels, but we all have to remember, um, and even me and my staff have had to educate ourselves that these are the top of the top um, esports competitors, and you know they need what they need to to perform. Um, it's just like any other sporting pro, and you know we don't have that stigma anymore, at least in in my crew, in my circles, but it is something that is interesting to an outsider for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I guess expanding on that a little bit and, and taking a bit of a tangent again at the same time, I, w- I just want to talk about saturation in the market. You know, there's there's been some global uh, reports as of recent about CSGO and Dota 2, especially in the past two years, of simply just having too much happen. Is that something that you're seeing here in Australia? You know, we're a developing market. It's super common for so many companies here to be in that realm of getting seed investment and, you know, really beginning their journey. Do you think there are, you know, too many tournament operators functioning in the space right now? I mean, it's always my default to say, yes, right, there should be one and that should be ESL, right? Um, But (laughs) look, a real answer to this is that, you know, there's there's always going to be as many TOs or as many of any other company as we can sustain. So far, at least I have not seen really any kind of sign of a breaking point. We, or at least at ESL, we try to exist harmoniously um, with other TOs and other entities entering the esports space. Naturally, um, we become competitors um, and that's fine. Competition in any, in any, uh, in any environment is great, I think. Um, Specifically, is it oversaturated? I think we're getting there. I mean, but that's just going to happen with any industry. It's booming. Everyone wants to get in on it. Everyone's trying to make their buck. Mm. Um, Now that a lot of big brands are on board, and especially in Australia, it's really ramping up and getting noticed. You just, it's just the nature of it. As more people get involved, they see dollar signs. Um, more people are wanting to capitalize on that. Therefore, more TOs, more marketing agencies, more. Uh, representatives, they're all going to enter the scene. So we are going to see a a boom. We are, in, in fact, I would argue we're in it. Um, I think there's still more expansion to go, but um, I'm, I dare say that that expansion is only going to go so far as with any market before there's a correction and a retraction. And I feel that'll weed out the kind of people who are just trying to make the, the quick buck. But um, to directly answer your question, Chris, I would say that I don't think it's oversaturated yet, but I, I think we're on the path to, uh, to to getting there. And besides, you know, the, the cliche of people wanting to make a quick buck, what, what are the misconceptions of new people, you think, entering the market right now? What do they really need to, you know, take a long, hard look at before they decide to open the next esports company, whether it be a tournament operator team or whatever else? Um. Well, what they really need to take a look at is what the publishers want and what their rules are and what they're doing. To be honest, one of my pet peeves in the current environment, Chris, is how many, not just TOs, but let's just say uh, groups, entities. I'll use the word entities. How many entities are using IP owned by publishers without permission? And it's probably going to burn them. Mm. Um, I would say that they need to do their research into the market that they're actually trying to attack and when i say market i mean specifically the games the titles that they're trying to run uh they need to look at the existing infrastructure the existing rules and then the history of of where these communities have developed and where they've come from um gamers are smart they'll smell out a trap from a mile away and they know when there's an entity just trying to get into it because it's a new hot thing and they know when someone's being genuine and organic 
Um, so I would say that anyone trying to get into it should trying to really uh, learn their audience um, and understand them before just diving in because that's just destined for failure. Mm. Um, I would also say that you know, it sounds a bit contradictory to my comments thus far about educating a lot of brands, but I, I will say that don't underestimate that some brands know what they're talking about. There are a lot of brands that surprise me with their knowledge of esports and they've got people internally who do their research or watch Twitch streams or understand the nuances of of esports tournaments and who the players are around the world. Um, I've heard multiple stories of, of people going in and doing these elevator pitches to people who actually happen to be very educated on the subject and they end up just making a fool of themselves. So um, I would say to, to put this succinctly is understand the audience and understand the, the gaming community you're targeting and understand that brands probably are switched on to what you're trying to pitch them. And even if they're not, being, um, you know, actually uh, upfront and honest with the kind of numbers and metrics and things that you're pitching to them is really important because mm. it's so easy to find out this data that um, they'll probably call you out on it. So, but yeah, there's many tips you could you could give someone trying to enter the space. Yeah, I think there's there's a few great points you identified there. Is number one, you know, making sure the data is realistic, and I would add onto that too is making sure the data is localized mm. um, because that's obviously a major thing. That you don't see a lot, you know. Most most people who are new to kind of pitch the esports market will have the new zoo articles as their first eight slides, which everyone's already seen. Um, so you know, putting in some more data is always great too. I would um just to comment on that. I mean, I I respect new zoo as an entity, but I can you know it, it, it's frustrating things like this happen, right? Where I I know for a fact that new zoo's numbers aren't accurate for our region. So just on that, Chris, I would say that people should also do their own research as well mm. and not just rely on single publications. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I think having a multitude of research and, and differing opinions and, you know, I, I think that people worry too much about um, trying to seem like they're overly credible and, you know, whether internally they think they are or they're not, that, that people will try to present all of these, you know, death by numbers and slides and information. But I think if you've been around in the industry for a period of time, you have enough knowledge that you can start to talk about these numbers off the top of your head through personal experience and going to these events and, you know, becoming involved in the industry. And it's something that I've talked about in many, many podcasts so far is that just turning up to things is part of being in the industry. Um, you know, just going to PAX Australia, which isn't an esports only event, um, going to things like Intel Extreme Masters and and others, you know, varying sizes here in Australia, like Battle Arena Melbourne and such, is a great part of it because you get to see these things firsthand and you can really talk about these different parts of the industry and, and how they may operate for you. Uh, I wanted I wanted you to unpack a little bit more for me the relationship with publishers in the esports market. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I, think I wouldn't be... Um, you know, I think it, it would be honest to say that, that ESL probably has the best relationship of any esports entity in Australia with the publishers, just through the fact of how much work you've done with them in the past. So can you expand a little bit more on why they're so inherent to the esports market and, and maybe some gaps that uh, people are missing right now by not talking to them? Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, just some background. You know, we do, we are lucky that the the ESL brand, you know, carries some clout globally. So that helped with initial conversations. But we first started getting involved with publishers long before we were ESL and long before that was even on anyone's tongue locally. Um, mm. The event that really put us on the map as an entity, and this was back when we were ACL and 
in media and events was uh, the StarCraft uh, WCS, which was in 2012. We ran here in Sydney. That one was really, if I look back on our road to where we are now, that was the event that really um, put us, really shot us to the moon. Um, and, you know, I've got to give a big shout out to PJ from Blizzard who took a risk on us to do that event because um, he really helped make us the company we are today. Um, and that is just a case of a publisher who looked at a, a, a young grassroots esport company uh, or organization, which was ACL, and said, you know, these guys actually love the product and seem to be switched on and know what they're doing. And he gave us a shot. So I can't tell anyone um what it took for for him to make that decision and and maybe that's something that you might be able to speak to him or others out there might be able to ask him directly but um he took a chance on us and and that's how we got that relationship with uh with blizzard which was just us um basically responding to them and and trying to get a a a pitch in there to to do wcs and and Mm. you know it actually came off without a hitch it was very very successful we had tasos over which were the biggest casters in the world at the time for the biggest game in the world at the time. Um, so it was really, really awesome. Um, going further on the publisher topic, um, I can't stress enough how important it is to have a good relationship with the publishers. These are the people who own the rights to the game. These are the people who um, can make or break you. That Not many people realise that, uh, and from what I've seen, Chris, I would say the majority, vast majority, in fact, of esports activations in the country are illegitimate because they shouldn't be run because they don't have approvals from the IP owners. Um, not pe- many people actually understand that if you look through the terms and conditions of a video game, you're, you're basically paying for a license to privately pay a game when you buy a game. You don't have the ability or the um, the legal permission to run large-scale esports events and stream them and sell sponsors on them without the permission of the rights holder of the publisher mm. so it's it's a huge huge oversight which is going to come back and bite some people very hard but look beyond permissions beyond just getting their approval to run events i mean we do and what sets esl apart from a lot of others is that a lot of what we do is publisher driven activity we run a lot of white label events there are a lot of events that we've done that not many people know that we were the faces behind um, uh, some recent um, but good examples would be the Overwatch World Cup event that took place at the Star in Sydney. Um, that was a completely uh, Blizzard and Overwatch branded event, but it was actually ESL behind the scenes who produced that event because we produce that for Blizzard White Label. Um, we do all of the Rainbow Six activations in the region. We've run Halo World Championships, which have been both branded and non-branded. Um, we've done the Call of Duty World League when it was in Australia and New Zealand. That was us. Um, so there's a lot of work that we do, which is publisher-funded and driven activity because um, there's a few ways that we work in esports. So there's obviously our own products where we sell sponsorships for. There's a hybrid model where it's a publisher paid for driven activity to some degree, but we can also sell sponsorships for. And then there's completely white label where we act as a service provider. We're paid a fee to execute a program for someone else. And we do all of those in varying degrees. So um, Getting that relationship with the publisher is absolutely vital. Mm. Um, I hear from a lot of people that it can be difficult. Um, But look, professional presentation and just reaching out to them goes a long way. Um, And just respecting them and their point of view. Um, 
some publishers can be finicky, um, but it's, it's very rewarding to have a good relationship with them because it is very mutually beneficial. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think you pretty much sum that one up perfectly. I don't think there's much else that, that can be added onto there. And yeah, I definitely would like to add the weight of, of like what you said. It's, it's very important to have a relationship with these publishers, but also the fact that the publishers can open so many doors for you as, as they've done with ESL and as they can with anything ranging from contacts to funding, because ultimately, you know, so many people are trying to keep that publisher happy as well. They do have distributors. They've got local retail stores they work with. They've got brands that are trying to work with them to do licensing on products and such. So there's a lot of weight that that publisher can throw around, which, you know, is very similar to working with the retail brand, in my opinion, as well, is that a lot of the brands are trying to keep that retailer happy at all times. So use that relationship and use that weight to your advantage whenever possible. Yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. Um, I mean, having the relationship with the publishers is probably one of the the, uh, the strongest relationships that we have and can can have. Um, I would even go so far as to say the most important beyond any kind of supplier that we might have um, because it's just true that without the publisher, you don't have the game. Um, without the game, you don't have esports. So um, it, it, it's a very um, important relationship to develop. And again, I would say from what I see in the current esports climate in Australia from a, from a commercial point of view is easily the, the biggest oversight from many entities that I see at the moment. But taking the conversation more towards employment in the esports space, um, you know, I, I'd say that you've got a fairly, you, you know, if you look at the general flavor of the way that you got into esports is a way that many of your peers would have so far, which is sort of by accident through grassroots and, and through getting your hands dirty and, and putting, you know, your hand up to volunteer and helping out. Is, is that still the standard pathway that you see for employees into ESL or is there something that's developing that's a bit more official? I can only speak to, to ESL's employment pathway. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but ESL, because of who, how we built this company, and when, sorry, I shouldn't say ESL, ESL Australia, so our, our entity here, the way we grew um, and the people who run this company um, we all did the hard yards for many years. Um, I, w- I myself was a volunteer for four to five years. I spent my own money to go across the country and work my weekends. You know, like I, I, I've been there and as has every senior of this office. Um, we respect that. And esports is so, um, at least in Australia, to get a real job in esports is still so difficult and they're so few and far between that uh, competition is tough. And for us, we don't always respect a flashy degree. We don't always need one. Um, we want people that are passionate because we feel that, at least at ESL Australia, what sets, sets us apart is that we are a group of esports enthusiasts. Um, we're ex players. We are people who grew up and um, really got engaged with esports from from the grassroots. So to answer directly, I, I would say that, and is very common with our employment paths, is that we really try to uh, pick people up who have earned their way and can fit into roles. So volunteering is, is a, a really good path. I mean, I can name multiple people who work full-time for our office right now that started as volunteers. Mm. Um, and just getting in on that on that basement level, um, and don't be afraid of just taking, dare I say, a shit kicking job to start off with. I actually want to tell you 
a very quick story yep. about um, a, ge- a gentleman that, that works with us. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of him. I, I'll talk him up day in, day out. So he's a, a guy named Philip Clear. And Phil is a producer here at ESL. And he produces some of the largest esports events in the world. ESL won Cologne. Um, he's gone over to Mumbai. Uh, he's done multiple events throughout um, Southeast Asia, like ESL won Gen- uh, Genting. Uh, he works at IEM, um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Phil started out, and now that he's a, a global producer, he started out working as a casual in our warehouse rolling up cables. I literally hired him as a warehouse monkey, basically. Um, and I say that with affection, by the way. Um, he, he was our guy in the warehouse. It, it just really did, you know, all of the grunt work. Um, one thing led to another. We needed help in uh, production, and he put up his hand as someone who was interested in, in learning about esports streaming and production. And it took, from the moment he put up his hand, it took, I think, two years or just under two years for him to be producing a global esports event, which is insane. Um, so don't be afraid of, of those basement level jobs because uh, that's how a lot of people with great success stories have actually started. Um, and I can tell you many accounts of, of where that's actually happened. So yeah, volunteering, just getting your foot in the door and doing those kind of things is something that I would suggest people do. Um, and I would also say, just as, as a word of advice to people looking to get into esports careers, I can tell you that it's no walk in the park because I don't expect to get you in and then use you as my, you know, my dedicated game tester. You're not going to come in and jump on a PC and play games all day, which is very often than not uh, a, a misconception. Um, it's a very tough space. It's very competitive. A lot of people want to work in esports, mm. um, and you got to be willing to to do that grind. Um, as the vast majority of people that work with us, they have done that. But um, look, with that little scare bit aside, if you have a true passion for gaming, if you love uh, if you love esports and you love the scene, um, you can really thrive in these kind of environments. So touching, I guess, on, on more of the senior employees now and talking about the process of moving from, you know, volunteer and, and a more casual organization as ACL to something, you know, backing a global brand like ESL, what's the, what were the major challenges in the shift for you guys? Are you looking at, um, you know, a lot more stress with larger budgets and a larger name? You know, you're obviously scaling up and hiring staff. Does that add extra pressure with trying to secure contacts and such? And are there any things that popped up that you maybe weren't expecting? I'd say one of the biggest stresses and throughout that growth period is that we just need to remember that the people who run ESL Australia today are the same people who were just running ACL back in the day. Um, no one is expecting you to, you know, have a, a degree certification in, in event management. No one's expecting you to be a, a master at any of those things back in the day. But as as things progressed and we eventually grew and grew and grew, those kind of expectations became evident. Um, the great thing about us is that we really are an experienced crew. Um, you know, we've been doing esports events for 10 years this year. Um, and we've just learnt on the job and done a lot of things and we've made mistakes along the way, but we've also made improvements and there's a lot of things that you don't learn on paper that you're able to learn in, uh, growing with the, uh, with the industry as we have here in Australia. Um, the stresses of, of, of becoming ESL. I mean, there was a lot of, it, it came hand in hand, really. Um, the stress also came with, you know, life jackets that come with being part of a, 
of a global company. Um, and we do get to be involved with global activations that ESL has, which is fantastic. I mean, uh, dare I say, I mean, IEMs next month, you know, we wouldn't have that without ESL, I, I, I'd say. Mm. Um, so that has been awesome. Um, but no, I mean, it's really hard to unpack that question because there's a, a million ways to break it down. But uh, it has simultaneously become stressful uh, more stressful, but also more organized because with an, ent- an entity such as ESL comes more tools and more structure and more resources, et cetera, et cetera, um, that kind of come hand in hand with those additional stresses. So I'd say both sides of the coin, you know, um, have, you know, really grown. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a reasonable answer. And it wasn't a question, you know, for those listening that we really prepared beforehand. And I, and I wanted to kind of get your on-the-ground opinions of that. Mm. And it's something that I'm wanting to explore a lot more in this podcast is talking to people about, you know, in a general investor standpoint, what it, what it's like going from seed investment to a Series A or something like that because your company's going to go through a lot of these changes. And it's something that's happened so much in the traditional startup market but not something really that's yet hit the Australian startup market or the Australian esports market specifically as part of that. And, you know, like you were saying, if you're joining on board with a global company, you, you can be afforded some of those luxuries of using their name, like you've said, to, to help you get some great contacts or their support um, with events and guidance with events like IEM Sydney and such. And also, you know, if you're a startup with the extra funding that's afforded to you to be able to afford high quality lawyers and accountants and maybe hire a couple of senior staff from traditional industry across or, you know, rely on you know, fostering that experience yourself. So, yeah, I definitely think it was a, yeah, very interesting answer for you. And I and I guess some of my next questions then go to ESL ANZ and, and what you're doing right now. So, you know, you're hiring a project manager right now and I assume that they'll they'll be reporting to you and, and this is very sim- similar to your previous role. So if someone wants to apply for this job right now, how are they going to impress you and, and the other senior staff? What, what exactly are you looking for? What's the magic source? Yeah, so for this particular role that we're hiring for, I mean, we we are trying to look for this one that this particular role, we need someone that can kind of hit the ground running. So we have said in that advertisement that um, we want someone either with um, experience or some kind of qualification. But look, uh, just to level with you, if someone came in and they had, you know, they just were switched on, they know their way around the PC they are socially capable and they're able to talk to suppliers. They're not afraid to get on the phone. You know, I don't want someone who just wants to email. If someone's willing to get on the phone and and is actually quite um, good at thinking on their feet um, and just has those general kind of qualities and a passion for esports, you know, I'd be willing to entertain them and and interview them, you know. Um, I, for me personally, and you are right, this this particular role, would be reporting to me and they are the role is going to be very similar to my previous role um for me i I really want someone that can mesh with our team and they understand the esports market not to an expert extent because whoever's going to be getting this role may or may not have come from an esports role previously i'm not expecting them to be masters but an understanding of the space and an understanding of what we do and then uh, again just being capable of understanding a set process because there is a formula to executing an event they are able to grasp that and just have a basic understanding of of the space then really 
that's all it takes for me, Chris, to get to get at least the foot in the door and have a conversation with me about it. Um, and from there, then of course I'd just look at you know what experience they do have, especially in the esports environment, especially in the gaming scene. Um, and then yeah, we'd go from there. Um, but conversely, if someone knows doesn't know a lick about esports, but they're you know an event management extraordinaire with a decade of experience, I'd of course entertain them as well. So. There's a couple of different approaches. And yeah, if anyone wants to pause the podcast right now and go take a look at that job listing, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 31. So numbers three, one, and, and we'll chuck some links up there. But, you know, if they don't have the time to, to go to that URL, Josh, where can they find out more information and possibly apply? Um, we've got the, uh, the information posted on our socials. So that's ESL Australia, both on Twitter and Facebook. Um, that's probably the best location to, uh, to check out information on that post. Yeah, so I'm definitely seeing a flavor of, you know, ASLANZ coming from the grassroots of the industry. You, you talked a lot about all the seniors have put in the hard yards and, and um, you know, really establishing themselves in that experience aspect. Is there a point in time when you foresee ASL scaling to the point that you need to start looking only at degrees? Or do you think that the inherent esports market experience is, is something that's going to be required from here on out until the future? I have a very biased opinion on this on this particular point, um, and that's purely because I've been able to work my way to the top, or damn near close to the top of of the rung in esports, at least in our region. Um, and I've done that without even completing high school, let alone having a university degree. So I'm not a believer, and purely because I know of it firsthand that you actually need that. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not naive enough to think that you can do every role imaginable without the correct education. Please please don't uh, get me mistaken. I'm not going to go and try brain surgery without being a, a doctor trained at university. Um, mm. But um, I, in esports particularly, I don't think that there are many fields that require that kind of education. There are some roles, particularly on the engineering and TV side, where it's it's just quite simply a requirement the IT and networking side, that's also often a requirement. But when it comes to things like marketing, sales, uh, project management, I mean, just from the people that we currently have in our project management team and our sales and marketing, these are people that understand the product and know what it takes to deliver the product. You can't, at least currently, learn that in the education system. That is only something that comes from experience um, and from being involved in the space. So uh, to directly answer your question, some, some roles will inevitably need education, but do I see there being like a ramp up to requirement based on growth? I mean, not really. Until I need an in-house lawyer, then sh- sure, then of course they're going to need to be university educated. If I need, um, you know, an, an in-house XYZ role that, that is specialist, Sure, but for the majority of roles in our office, they're not required. Um, I, I, that's not to say that you've just got a free pass if you've got no education, so don't be mistaken. Um, but I personally, and as do many employers and many people in this space, we currently value experience and knowledge and passion over you know a piece of paper. Yeah, I think it's a fair enough take, and it's um it's a question that I covered for those listening back in episode twenty two with with Ann Matthews the the co-founder of Fnatic, you know, one of the largest global esports brands as well. And, you know, many of the other founders that I talk to have very similar 
you know, very similar responses of, of varying degrees, depending on their personal experience and, and their and their biases, which you've been kind enough to, you know, help explain to the listeners as well, which is definitely good. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, trying to wrap up this podcast a little bit here now as well, we've been going for, you know, nine on an hour now. Um, I want to understand a little bit more about some of the events that ASL has coming up and the scale of which compared to what you used to have. So touching on a bit of what we talked about at the start, what are some of the major planning processes that might have changed over this time? And I, I want to get a little bit of an idea into the 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 whole process from concept and ideation to completion. Are there any, you know, books or online modules or CRM processes or task trackers that have really helped out ESL that some people can maybe look into if they want to research what you guys do? I would say that there's no, there's definitely no set formula and there's no set um, business modules, at least that I'm aware of, but take that with a grain of salt from the, uh, the uneducated from the university. But mm. um, th- there's nothing that I'm quite aware of that would give you the biggest leg up in esports. Sure, doing a business degree is going to help um, for sure, um, but nothing particular. When it comes to how we actually operate and tools and, and resources online, I mean, there's a lot of project tracking tools and stuff that are available that we've used both now and in the past. Things like Trello, Basecamp, communication tools that also help with tracking, Slack, etc. I mean, those kind of tools are, are what we use and as do many others. Um, but yeah, there's there's no real set formula or none that I'd, I'd really uh, divulge into, but they're the ones that we've used. Um, when it comes to the, the process of getting a large-scale esports event online and and going from you know on sale to activating to post it's it's changed dramatically you know back just to, to juxtapose the two you know when we did ACL you know we'd try and book a community hall that was about the hardest part get a <laughs> actually get a space and trying to get it announced you know generally we always aimed for two months. Um, get it out there so people could start signing up and mm. and uh, and paying fees so that we could actually pay for the hall. And uh, that's about it. There's not much more to it. I mean, we had the power and, and network equipment already, so it's just a matter of getting in there, laying it down, and then when people come in, they set up. Now, obviously, it's vastly different to a, a, a full-scale esports event we do now. So we plan events like IEM or the Melbourne Esports Open. We, we plan that many months, if not years out. So um, there's, you know, I can speak to IEM where we're having conversations about that, you know, six, eight, ten months ago about how we're going to uh, plan out our timeline for activation. When are we going to go on sale with tickets? You know, how we go through the process of getting the teams, what the announcers are going to be, the social media activations, how we're going to get Alex Blakey to come up with fresh new memes, you know, <laughs> all, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then there's obviously um, negotiations with the venue that happened very early on. If you don't already have multi-year deals, where you're going to activate, the size of the activations, the type of the activations, how you're going to sell the spaces to partners or suppliers. Um, the list goes on and on and on. And that, that doesn't even touch on the tournament itself, which is, Who's formulating the plan for the format and how the tournament operates? Now, IEM is a little different because it follows a global format and we have international people who do that. But, um, you know, what's the stage design? What's the AV scope? Um, Who's going to program the show? Who's going to direct it and who's going to dictate it? And then through all the way to what's your back of house look like? Who gets green rooms? What that kind of setup looks like? There's so many little facets 
that um, no one person can handle, which which is why we've got a whole team on it. Um, IEM, we've got uh, my colleague Brad, who's a project manager for that particular event for IEM. I, I have and will for the third year running runs the operations manager for that event. Um, coincidentally, not really tied to my current title, but operations for that event. And we have a whole team that comes from from overseas to look after it as well. So there's so, so many um, facets of running such a large event. Um, they're too many to list, but dare I say they're six months plus out and work every day on these events. Um, Brad, as an example, is a committed resource to IAM. He currently has an assistant as well, and they've been working on IAM every single day since December. Um, it, it is a mammoth task to bring together, you know, a multi-million dollar event at one of the largest arenas in the country um, that that serves, you know, the largest one of the largest events in the world for thousands and thousands of people. So it's a huge scale, um, and it has come a long way. And, and you know, we're kind of lucky that we as a team get to to execute those things, and I think we do so pretty successfully. And what's the what's the size of ESL sitting there right now? You know, breaking it down into full time staff and and casuals and contractors. Um, FTEs at the moment, I think we're at 23 or 24 and, um, that number isn't huge, but we need to remember that number was three or four just in 2015. Um, so it's, it's grown a lot in just the last three or four years. Um, so we have about 23 or so full-time employees. We have a regular casual staffing of 60 or so. Um, and that varies from, uh, general event staff that helps help us execute industry and media activities through to broadcast staff and general um, uh, uh, event ops and, and admins and whatnot. So about 60 or so regular casuals. Um, and then beyond that, we have what I call seasonal casuals. So that's if, for example, we, we're, we're, all, we're always in Melbourne. So we have a, a bunch of people down there and whatnot and all around the country. So once you count account for our extended seasonal casuals, um, on our books, it's probably extends out to be about 100 to 150. And then, of course, you then have the, the awesome volunteer armies on top of that, which number in the hundreds. Mm, and, and what are the major pillars of your business? Like, like who are they reporting to and, and what different markets are they in? Um, so particular roles in the business? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the structure of our company, I mean, at the head, you've got uh, myself who does operations for the Australian office. And kind of as a sideways step to me is Thomas Russell, who his uh, title is General Manager for ESL APJ and Australia. Um, it's kind of a, a, I would say it's a different structure to what you'd normally see um, in a lot of companies. It's a bit of a strange one, which I won't bore anyone with in, in this one. Um, and then from there, you know, we've got senior project managers, uh, management, um, which uh, Brad, who heads up IAM, is, is one of those. And we've got a, a broader project management team that filters down. Um, so each project manager generally runs a particular program or activation or project. Um, they will do their own staffing. And if there's a broadcast or stream element, they'll talk to our broadcast manager who will then do their own staffing. We kind of split up operations and event execution from broadcast and, uh, and TV, as most would. Um, and then, yeah, then from there, it's as per any other project, I guess, they'd reach out to the former staff list and, and kind of fill those roles with our either our FDEs or our, or our casuals and off we are to the races. Yeah, and, and what does... Um... You know, what does the process look like for you in regards to handover? Like, 
you know, we haven't talked too much, I guess, about marketing and business development and such. You know, when can you run me through a little bit about yeah, what that process looks like when you're putting an event together? Is there a smooth handover process? And I guess that that opens up to a wider question is, you know, how important have structured processes become while ESL has been scaling? I must say, you know, if I'm being transparent, you know, structure and getting these processes in place, that's one of the things that we have been weaker at. And this is where it's a byproduct of us being a a group of people who have learnt on the job and have just grown with the industry. And this is, dare I say ironically, the downside of most of us not having those business degrees that we talk about, which can be beneficial. Um, So that's a challenge that we've faced, but as we've grown and we've become more intertwined with the global ESL family, we've we've eventually got those structures in place. So um, that's been a challenge, but it, it is very important to have those structures in place. And speaking of the particular processes and how the workflows go, you know, once it depends on what we're doing, so it depends on the product, but let's say it's... Um, Let's say it's our sales team talking to a publisher about trying to activate a white label event. You know, our sales and our account management team and our biz dev team, who are kind of um, they're intertwined, obviously. Mm. Um, but once they've, you know, it, we rely on our account managers and our, and our sales guys to to make that contact and try and pitch the idea to um, to our clients or potential clients. You know, they'll they'll work with our project management team to talk about what kind of products we're able to develop. So in that essence, our project managers kind of act as, I guess you would say, um, product guides um, or um, trying to think of a better terminology to use for them. But um, they, they kind of influence the, the, the potential product that we're going to pitch for. So the project managers are involved in that pitch process. But then they're kind of detached. We leave it to the sales guys. They'll go out and try and um, pitch to our clients, you know, a particular product or a project that we, we think may work for them. Um, if that's positive or, or if we, uh, you know, we, we win a pitch from, from doing that, then the sales guys often come back to the project guys and, and just say, look, here's what we've sold. And more often than not, we, we get a bit upset when they've moved the goalposts and <laughs> do what they have to do to, to get a sale, as I'm sure you can relate to. Mm. Um, but, um, then we just develop the product from there. We go back and forth and we develop our budgets and we get all the all the stars aligned and and we execute the, the project so having those those processes uh in place and and knowing how uh the workflow goes from you know concept to reality yeah having having those in place are pretty important at the same time we have to be flexible because it doesn't always go like that um so it, it's a bit of both if i'm honest chris yeah, and I think, you know, for anyone listening and for you too, the reason I'm trying to unpack things in this way is is A, help to draw the comparisons between ACL Pro to ESL and the likeness between that and a regular startup and business that's scaling and also trying to help people understand the thought process of a company that's come from the grassroots, that's really come from spending money out of their own pocket to grow up over that time too. And I think there's so many different points within this podcast today that you've talked about that kind of push those numerous different points home mm. from, you know, having to scale and the pressures that come with that, talking about uh, experience over degrees and the senior staff reflecting a lot of that company culture as well and talking about the hard work ethic that comes with a lot of pride and the backing of, you know, a large company like ESL that provides that little bit of a safety net that you're looking for. 
as well over that scaling time. Yeah, well, I, I hope some people got some insight from it. And, um, you know, there are some things that I think can apply to everyone. There are others that are very tough to apply, like the way that just talking about growth is going to be hard for anyone who's just entering the market in 2019 to relate to because as I've kind of suggested, mm. we really did grow with the market. As the market grew, so did we. We didn't have a, a phase of, you know, getting funding for, for our business. We didn't try and go out and, and get investors and, hey, we've got this really cool idea for a business and you should back us and, you know, this this is going to be the new hot thing. We didn't do that. We were a bunch of guys that tried to just get support for a product that we organically wanted to operate. You know, that's why we were volunteers. That's why our first sponsors were for a couple of controllers and for some TVs. And then it eventually grew into our first, you know, monetary sponsor of, oh, a thousand bucks. God damn, we're loaded now. Mm. Um, through to, it, it was a slow, slow process of, okay, now we've got a publisher involved of a couple grand. And then it became, oh, someone wants to run us to run their event to them. Um, you know, that was a very, very slow process. You know, I, I remember where we activated a uh, an event for Game, the uh, the retailer when they were around. Hmm. Um, and that was, you know, we had people who worked for ACL. We came from all over the place. Um, I was living in Tamworth, country New South Wales at the time, and Nick was in uh, in Brisbane. And we all converged on Sydney to run this event for, I think it was like a few few thousand measly bucks which barely covered the cost of activation. Mm. Um, I, I remember that clearly. Um, and that was just because we wanted to do it and we wanted to work in gaming and we were willing to make those sacrifices. So th that growth, the way we went, we did things that not everyone would do. And don't get me wrong, there are people out there that would sacrifice a lot more than I have, um, not trying to make it a pissing contest or anything. Um, but it, it, it's, it's how we've grown. I don't see anyone in the modern time replicating that so there's a lot i feel like you could take from how we grew at the same time i think it would be difficult for someone to emulate in current times at least in australia um but yeah chris it's 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 been a been a wild ride yeah and i think it's been really interesting to touch on the different you know the, the different experience and knowledge between people that are coming from separate angles whether they're coming from traditional industry raising a lot of money and coming into esports as we've seen some companies do like gfinity for example mm -hmm. versus the rise of esl over that period of time and the pros and cons that come with different business models and you know, there's nothing that's different between this and traditional business, and there's nothing that's different between this and publishers, looking at the way that Riot handles League of Legends esports versus Valve handling Dota 2 esports. And I find it very interesting for myself, and, you know, the questions from the listeners seem to find it quite impelling too, is, you know, how do these work? What is the best business case, and is there a best business case? And, yeah, really discussing and, and thinking about those different ways that people operate, for sure. Yeah, well, there's pros and cons to both. Like, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we have weaknesses um i'm very conscious that um there are a lot of advantages that come with a very well resourced well-funded new company full of bright minds who are motivated to make something work in esports um, don't get me wrong um, at the same time there's also a lot of advantages that, uh, that come with working with the dinosaurs of the space and and have been here from the start and understand the product. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really want to put a bias spin on it. I think there's there's pros and cons to both methodologies and I think they both have their values. Um, and all I will say is that no matter which 
method has been executed, whichever method has been done by any entity, whether that's a TO or some other uh, enterprise in esports, I feel like as long as they have a genuine commitment to not only making the most of their company, which is what everyone is trying to do, of course, but also as long as they have the the best interest of the scene and, and growth of the community, which they will all mutually benefic- benefit from, if they have that at the forefront of their mind, I, I feel that they're already on the way to success, mm. no matter what their model is. Yeah. So talking about, you know, the future and, and success and, and some positive notions to cap off this podcast what's coming up next for esl what's what's on the cards for 2019 um i mean the obvious one is uh is iem which by the time this podcast is out it's probably a, a week or two away so uh make sure you check back in on me and on uh, on me before then um but iem sydney is back for its third year uh we've just announced a second title uh which is overwatch contenders or season final is going to be there which is going to be sick i'm really really excited for that um, so two major titles at the event, plus many more through all of our uh, exhibitors and partners. Um, and then by the time this podcast comes out, we have announced uh, the Melbourne Esports Open is returning. Um, and that is going to be highlighted by the OPL final and uh, Contenders Season 2 final as well, um, along with many, many other tournaments. I think on the release, we're, we're mentioning several titles, including Rainbow Six is going to be there. Uh, Pokemon is going to be there, which is actually going to be awesome. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, many, many things. Um, and then on top of that, ESLA UNZ Champs is still obviously going on. Um, we do a lot of things in CSGO and Dota, and there's going to be a few more titles announced later in the year as well. So plenty going on in the ESL camp. Fantastic. And if people want to keep in touch with yourself and what your company is doing across social media, where can they do so? Um, you can my, find myself uh, at InManiac uh, on Twitter. Um, and then at ESL Australia, both across uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Yeah, thanks for joining me today, Josh. And thanks to the listeners for listening into the Big Esports Podcast. This has been episode number 31. If you want to check out anything we've talked about today, including timestamps and any relevant links to social media or websites, you can do so at bigesports.gg forward slash 31, which is the numbers 31. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.